hey, Forensic Tales listeners, I'm always on the hunt for new true crime podcasts. And since we're all staying home a little bit more lately, I've been binging the podcast Sword and Scale. Sword and Scale is the longest standing true crime podcast that combines 911 calls, interrogation audio to tell you real life stories that will chill you to the bone. They recently covered a case that happened right here in my own backyard of Orange County that still gives me the chills. Sword and Scale is available bi-weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today and leave them a review. That's Sword and Scale, also available at swordandscale.com. Subscribe today and give it a listen. Sword and Scale, proving that the worst monsters are real. For almost 50 years, Harvard was haunted by the unsolved murder of one of their very own graduate students. In January 1969, when the temperature dropped to a low 30 degrees in Boston, 23-year-old graduate student Jane Britton failed to show up to take an exam. Her boyfriend and friends were immediately alarmed because this was completely out of character for the high-performing student. Jane's body was discovered later that afternoon. She had been brutally raped and savagely beaten to death inside of her very own apartment, just blocks away from campus. Over the course of the investigation, police followed many red herrings and went down endless rabbit holes trying to find Jane's killer. It would take almost five decades, 50 years, for advancements in DNA testing to finally identify a possible suspect. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 33, The Harvard Murder. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast that discusses real, bone-chilling true crime stories and how forensic science has been used in the case. Some cases have been solved through cutting-edge forensic techniques, while other cases remain unsolved. If you're interested in supporting the show and getting access to exclusive content and bonus material, consider visiting our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. I want to give a huge shout out to the show's newest patron, Jamila. Thank you so much for your support. You rock. Every contribution, big or small, helps me to continue to produce the true crime content you love. Please consider supporting the show on Patreon. 
Now, let's talk about the Harvard murder. Jane Britton was born in 1945, and she was the daughter of Boyd Britton. Boyd Britton was the well-known and respected vice president of Radcliffe College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Radcliffe College is a women's only private liberal arts university that is the female version of Harvard. Both Radcliffe College and Harvard University share very similar reputations in the academic community and are both really, really good universities. Jane's mother, Ruth Britton, was a visiting scholar in medieval history at the Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Study. So, needless to say, Jane grew up in a very academic-oriented household. Both her parents were extremely smart and very well-educated. There was very little question as to whether or not Jane would grow up and be just as successful and educated as both of her parents were. Jane grew up in the Boston suburb of Needham. She attended the Dana Hall School, which is a private school in the city of Wellesley. But Jane wasn't just talented in her schoolwork. Outside of school, she liked to ride horses, play the piano, play the organ, and she even liked to paint, and she was very creative. After graduating from high school, Jane decided to attend Radcliffe College herself, where her father was still the vice president. At Radcliffe, Jane studied anthropology and graduated from the university magnum cum laude in 1967. After graduating from Radcliffe, Jane was accepted into Harvard's graduate program in anthropology. By all accounts, Jane Britton was growing up to be the success that everyone in her life knew she would be. During her first year in graduate school at Harvard, Jane was selected to accompany the school's department chair, Stephen Williams, and travel to the country of Iran. In Iran, the group participated in a archaeological dig that discovered what they believed were the ruins of Alexandria Carmania, one of over 70 cities founded by Alexander the Great. Now, this was a huge academic accomplishment for Jane. She was one of only a handful of doctorate students who were selected to participate in this incredible and just unforgettable dig. It was truly an opportunity of a lifetime. In late 1968, Jane returned back to Massachusetts from her trip to Iran, and she settled in to a fourth-floor apartment at 6 University Road. The apartment complex was a building owned by Harvard and was just two blocks away from Harvard Square. And just like during her undergraduate studies, in grad school, Jane was dedicated to her studies and her grades. If she wasn't inside of her apartment on University Road, 
You could find her at the university's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology with her nose in a book. Now, even though Jane was really focused on her studies, she was described as a social and a fun young lady. She primarily spent time with her fellow grad students and also had a boyfriend who was in her same department at Harvard by the name of James Humphreys. Even though the apartment building that Jane lived in was owned by Harvard, it was described as a little shady, a little unsafe. In fact, the New York Times called the apartment building seedy and roach-infested, with peeling paint in the hallways. I mean, I guess you could say this was kind of your typical apartment building you'd expect to find college and grad students living in. I think we've all lived in not-so-great apartments before. And just to provide some reference... This apartment that Jane shared with a pet turtle and a cat ran for $75 a month. Yes, $75 a month was the going rent. But Jane's apartment building was a little more than just not so great. Because a few years before Jane moved in, in 1963, Beverly Samens, a graduate student at Boston University, had been raped and murdered right there inside of her very own apartment. Beverly's rape and murder is believed to be one of the 13 murders committed by the Boston Strangler. In 1969, Jane expressed plans to her friends that she intended to move out of the apartment sometime later that year. But she couldn't have moved out of that apartment any sooner. On the night of January 6th, 1969, Jane and her boyfriend, James Humphreys, met up with a few fellow anthropology classmates, and the group of students went to dinner together at a local restaurant. After dinner, Jane and James decided that they wanted to stay out a little bit longer, and they decided to go ice skating together. According to James, he returned Jane back to her apartment around 10.30 p.m. that night. He said he stayed at her apartment with her for about an hour and that he left the apartment around 11.30 p.m. Around 12.30 a.m., Jane went down the hall to one of her neighbor's apartments where her and her neighbor had some drinks together. Specifically, Jane and the neighbor drank some sherry. The following morning, January 7th, was a really important day for all of the anthropology doctoral students. And that's because January 7th was the day of their general exams, which was basically the culmination of the classroom part of their grad degrees. This was a really important day, a day you just wouldn't miss. Because after you complete the general exams, Students then go on to start working on their dissertations full-time. But 
there was one student noticeably missing at the start of the general exams. Jane Britton hadn't shown up to campus that morning, which for any student would be alarming. But for Jane, this was completely out of character. For years, she had been extremely dedicated to her studies. This isn't something that she would just miss or forget to set an alarm for. Jane would have been there, ready to take her exams. This just wasn't like her. When Jane's boyfriend, James, finds out that Jane hasn't shown up to start her exam, he's immediately worried about her. He tries calling her again and again, but gets no answer from his girlfriend. So James stays on campus to take his exams, but throughout the entire time, he just can't stop thinking about Jane and why she isn't there. So around noon, James finished his exams and he headed straight to Jane's apartment. Now, it was widely known that the lock on James' apartment door was crummy. So once James gets to the apartment, he's easily able to get inside right there through the front door. And as he made his way inside the apartment, he could have never prepared himself for what he would find. Inside the apartment, where the walls were decorated with pictures of elephants and giraffes, James discovered the lifeless body of his girlfriend, Jane Britton. Jane was face down on her bed with her nightgown pulled up over her head. There was a rug and a fur coat covering the upper half of her body. Thinking that Jane might just be sick, he rushed next door to Jane's neighbor's apartment where Jill Mitchell lives. James and Jill return back to the apartment, and that's when they pull back Jane's nightgown from up over her head and see that her entire head is covered in blood. They quickly realize that Jane isn't sick. She's dead. James and Jill quickly call 911 to report what they found inside Jane's apartment. The Cambridge Police Department were the first officers to arrive. And right away, they knew Jane had been murdered and that they needed to find and recover whatever evidence they could that would help them find out who would do this to such a young, talented, smart young woman. The police pretty quickly determined that, in addition to being murdered, Jane was also sexually assaulted. Her body was sent to the coroner's autopsy for an autopsy to be performed, and the medical examiner determined that she had multiple skull fractures and that she had a huge bruise on one of her arms. So Jane's death was ruled a homicide by blunt force trauma. The medical examiner determined that Jane was likely killed 
about 10 hours before her body was discovered by her boyfriend and neighbor. In addition to the Cambridge police, the Massachusetts State Police were also called in to help with the investigation. They noted that nothing seemed to be out of place, nothing seemed to be missing from the apartment, nothing of value was taken here. So the idea that this may have been some sort of robbery gone wrong was quickly ruled out. Police knew that Jane had been struck on the head numerous times with some sort of pointy object, but they couldn't figure out exactly what type of weapon had been used in the attack. A short time into the investigation, they noticed that a 4 by 6 inch stone that also had a pointy edge a stone that Jane brought home from her dig in Iran was missing from her apartment after the murder, making it a possible murder weapon. Crime scene technicians were called into Jane's apartment to try and find any valuable forensic evidence that could help them find her killer. Technicians found a set of unknown fingerprints that didn't belong to Jane or anyone that she knew, and they didn't belong to anyone that the police knew had been inside of her apartment at any point. But the police couldn't match the set of fingerprints to anyone they had in their database. So the unknown fingerprint wasn't of any evidentiary value really early on in the case. The Massachusetts State Police and the Cambridge Police started canvassing Jane's neighborhood to try and get any leads in the case. And pretty quickly, they got a little bit of help from one other tenant's. A child who lived in an apartment inside the same building recalled hearing what they described as unusual sounds coming from the fire escape the same night of Jane's murder. Like maybe someone was trying to climb in or out of the apartment building through the fire escape. A little while later, another tenant came to help. Another neighbor told police that he saw a man around 1.30 in the morning and he was seen running away from the apartment building. The neighbor described the man to the police as being about six feet tall and maybe 170-ish pounds, but that was all the description the neighbor could provide. But still, both of these tips were pretty solid leads to someone, a man, had broken into Jane's apartment that night sometime around 1, maybe 1.15 in the morning. Jane's rape and murder attracted not only local media attention, her case was featured on national headline news. Nobody, nobody could believe someone like Jane Britton, a smart, beautiful, young graduate student, had been murdered 
in such a brutal way and to be murdered right in her very own apartment just minutes after she was with her friends, her boyfriend, and her neighbor. It was just a reminder everyone needed to say, hey, nobody is safe. Nobody. The media got their hands on a very unusual piece of evidence that was found inside of Jane's apartment. Investigators discovered a reddish-brownish powder all over her apartment. The powder was found on Jane's body, all over the floor, the walls, and there was even some of the powder found on her ceiling. Now, the powder was later identified as red okri, I, I, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, or iron oxide. Now, it's not clear whether or not the police released this information to the media or not, but this powdery substance was all over the apartment, and this information made headline news in Jane's case. So once this information about the powder was released through the media, a professor at the university's anthropology department came forward and he asked to speak directly to the police. He believed he knew exactly what the powder was and why it was found inside of Jane's apartment. Professor Williams, a Harvard professor himself, came forward and told police that red okri was used by ancient Iranians and a few other cultures around the world. People would sprinkle it over the dead as a part of their funeral ritual. So, was Jane's killer trying to send a message by sprinkling the red okri over her body? Or did the powder get all over the apartment some other way? Either way, this sent investigators down a rabbit hole that suggested maybe Jane's murder is somehow connected to her work as an anthropology student. Pretty quickly into the investigation, police suspected that whoever the killer was, they knew Jane, that this wasn't some random stranger attack. Remember, nothing was taken from inside of the apartment, and it didn't really appear to be some sort of robbery. It looked like whoever entered Jane's apartment that night did so with one single purpose— And that was to murder her. But was assuming that Jane knew her killer also sending police down yet another rabbit hole? Police questioned every single one of Jane's Harvard classmates and friends to try and find out who may have killed her. Who would want to hurt a young woman who had so much of her life ahead of her? But the police didn't get any leads. Jane's friends and family couldn't think of a single person who would want to murder her or why. 
Jane's family held her funeral service on January 10th, three days after she was last seen alive. At the funeral, Cambridge police officers set up audio and visual recording of the service. They did this because they believed that whoever killed her might just be someone who would also attend her funeral service. Now, as sick and twisted as this sounds, it's not unheard of for killers to attend their victims' funerals. They've even been known to become obsessed with their murders, and they sometimes will continue to visit their victims even at their grave sites. So the police thought that if they could film the funeral, maybe they could try and spot someone who may have been acting just suspiciously or maybe just acting weird. A possible suspect and a much-needed break in the case. But just like the investigation up until this point, the police didn't catch anyone acting weird or suspicious at Jane's funeral. So what about Jane's boyfriend, James Humphreys? A young woman goes missing. I think the first person police question is always the boyfriend. Well, James voluntarily took a lie detector test right after her murder, and he passed with flying colors. James Humphreys had nothing to do with his girlfriend's murder. So it's now been three days since the murder, and the Cambridge Police Department announced that they found the missing stone from inside of Jane's apartment. But they were careful this time around about their information on the case, and they decided to not disclose where the stone was located or where it was found. Over the next couple weeks, not much seems to develop in the investigation. Until February 6th, a little less than one month after Jane's murder. On February 6th, less than one month after Jane was found brutally murdered inside of her apartment, another woman, who also had connections to Harvard, was discovered dead inside of her Cambridge apartment in very similar circumstances. Her name was Ada Bean, a 50-year-old woman who worked for Harvard as a research secretary. Otta was found raped and beaten to death inside her apartment, located just one mile away from Jane's apartment on University Road. Just like Jane, Otta's body was found on her bed with her nightclothes pulled up over her head. And just like Jane, her body had also been covered with blankets. The two murders almost seemed identical. The similarities between Otta and Jane's murders were just too obvious for the police to ignore. Police were now wondering, were they looking for the same killer? A killer who was well on their way to becoming a serial killer? 
members of the public and the people in Boston started speculating that Ada and Jane might have been victims of Albert DeSalvo, also known as the Boston Strangler. The Boston Strangler was responsible for killing at least 13 women in the Boston area right around the same time. But this idea that the Boston Strangler had something to do with Ada and Jane's murders quickly went out the window. And that's because by this point, DeSalvo had already confessed to his crimes and the murders, and in fact, he was already locked up in a mental hospital. So, it was way beyond impossible for the Boston Strangler to have murdered either Ada or Jane. But, interestingly enough, people had long suspected that the Boston Strangler didn't act alone, that there were actually two killers, which gave rise to speculation that maybe the second Boston Strangler may have been involved in these two cases. But police were quick to say that they couldn't confirm any of these rumors and that it was just pure speculation on behalf of the public. With no solid leads or suspects in the case over the next several years, Jane's murder developed into a cold case. Years would go by without any solid piece of evidence linking the murder to a particular suspect, which must have just been absolutely devastating, heartbreaking for Jane's family, her mom and dad, her friends, and just anybody who knew her. I can't even begin to imagine what it's like to not only experience a tragedy like this, but to not even know who is responsible. This person gets to continue on with their life, while Jane doesn't get to, and neither does her family, really. So although Jane's murder occurred in the late 1960s, when our ability to conduct forensic and DNA testing was extremely limited, the first responding officers on scene were smart enough and forward-thinking enough to preserve all the evidence they could. They knew they might not have the DNA or forensic testing available to them now, but they had the mindset to consider what might be possible in the future of forensic science. One of the samples collected from Jane's body was a semen sample. They knew that if they could collect and preserve this semen sample, they might just be able to identify her killer through advanced DNA testing in the years to come. DNA testing really started to become widely available in criminal investigations beginning in the late 1980s, which is nearly 20 years after Jane's murder. One of the key pieces of forensic evidence that investigators' case in which they preserved was that semen sample. Because Jane had been sexually assaulted before her death, police were able to obtain a semen sample of the killer. 
So with the new advancements in DNA testing in the late 1980s, investigators ran that semen sample through the DNA database in hopes of getting a match. But unfortunately, the sample didn't come back as a match to any of the known profiles in the database. And once again, the case remains cold. The semen sample was retested again in 2006. Now, this is almost 40 years after Jane's murder, and it still came back as no match to any known DNA profiles. So by the early 2000s, it seemed as though Jane's case would never be solved that we would never know who was responsible for killing such a beautiful, smart, and young woman. Nearly 40 years have gone by without any solid breaks in the case. Now, if you're a betting kind of person, I would say that it's a pretty safe bet to say that her case was never going to be solved. By 2010, Jane's case captured the attention of several well-known writers, including New Yorker staff writer Rebecca Cooper and Alyssa Bertetto of Unsolved Mysteries. Cooper and Bertetto started looking into the case, and they started requesting copies of every piece of the investigation. They wanted to know why this case had remained unsolved for over four decades. But this small group of writers weren't able to get their hands on much because it was pretty common practice for law enforcement throughout the state of Massachusetts to not release much when it came to cases and especially cold cases like Jane's. They were basically known to release the bare minimum information, the information that they were required by law to disclose. But that was pretty much it. So if these writers were looking to get all the ins and outs of Jane's cold case, they were facing a major uphill battle. Widmer, Cooper, and Bertetto, who by this point were pretty much all working full-time on Jane's case, all filed lawsuits against the city of Cambridge. They were demanding that the department release Jane's case file. And in their lawsuit, they cited that there had been some fresh leads generated in other jurisdictions that just may be helpful in finally solving Jane's case. So while the police prepared for the lawsuit to eventually go in front of a judge, the police decided to review all the information they had on the case. And in particular, they looked at the semen sample, the DNA sequence they had already tested twice. They knew it was a long shot. The sample had already been tested twice, not generating a match either time. But, again, 
DNA and forensic testing is an ever-evolving field. Even within just a few short years, technology and advances in DNA testing can rapidly change. So they decided to take another stab at it. They decided to test the semen sample, the semen belonging to Jane's killer, and test it for a third time. By 2017, our advances in DNA testing were much further than where they were when the sample was first tested back in the late 1980s. We're talking light years ahead. By the year 2017, DNA analysis had gotten so good that we could now take a DNA sample and perform what is called a YSTR analysis and be able to identify strings in the DNA that are specific to one male depositor. YSTR tests are the same type of tests we do for paternity or even genealogical DNA testing. This type of analysis specifically tests the male Y chromosome. In Jane's case, Police performed a YSTR analysis on the semen sample in hopes that they could finally get a match. The string was entered into the Federal Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS for short, and the sample came back as a soft hit. The soft hit was identified as Michael Sumter. Almost 50 years Five long decades after Jane's murder, police finally have a name, a possible suspect in the murder, Michael Sumter. Michael Sumter had been charged and convicted of a rape as a young adult, and as a part of his sentence, he was required to submit a DNA sample. Now, this is quite common practice here in the United States. Typically, as a part of any plea deal or sentence, you're required to provide the state a DNA sample. That way, your DNA is registered in CODIS, and when future crimes occur, they can match you back to the crime with the sample they have on record. So with this soft hit from the YSTR analysis of the semen found on Jane's body, police were pretty sure they finally had their suspect. But there was a little problem. Michael Sumter was long dead by 2017. He died back in 2001 shortly after being released on parole on his rape conviction. And really, he was only released on parole because he was already dying of terminal cancer. So the parole board released him from prison to be placed immediately on hospice care. Police needed to be certain that the semen sample matched Michael Sumter, Jane's suspected killer. In order to be sure, police needed to test the semen sample against DNA from a closely related male. 
This is because the portion of DNA that's tested through YSTR analysis remains the same in all males within the same family, meaning this part of the DNA sequence will be the same if compared to a person's maybe brother or a father. An examination of Michael Sumter's records revealed that Michael had a brother. But just because they knew he had a brother doesn't mean they had any idea where this brother was. If they had any hopes of getting a DNA test to prove Michael was Jane's killer, they first needed to find his brother. Michael's brother's whereabouts were unknown by 2017. His last known address was from a couple years before. So the police really had no idea where this guy could be. So they decided that they needed to get a little creative if they wanted to find this guy. And what better way to find someone than the internet? Investigators used Ancestry.com to try and find out everything they could about Michael Sumter's family. Now, this is probably no surprise to any of you, but you can find out pretty much everything about a person and their family on the internet nowadays. So police tracked down the Sumter family on Ancestry.com and were able to successfully locate Michael's brother, the person they needed to compare the DNA profiles with, the person they finally needed to prove who killed Jane Britton five decades ago. Police contacted Michael's brother, who voluntarily provided them with a DNA sample. The DNA sample was compared to the semen sample found at the murder scene, and the results showed that Michael's brother's sample was close enough to the semen sample that it could eliminate all but 0.08% of the human male population. In non-scientific terms, this means Michael Sumter is Jane's killer. Michael Sumter had been convicted of two separate rapes. While released on a work release program in which he was serving time for the first rape, Sumter committed the second rape. A complete investigation into his whereabouts revealed that he was connected to the Cambridge area where Jane lived in 1969. Now, he wasn't living in the area during the late 1960s, but police learned that he did grow up in the area and attended the first grade in the Cambridge Public School District. In addition to the rapes, Michael Sumter had a lengthy criminal record. He was no stranger to the criminal justice system. Starting in his childhood, he'd been arrested several times as a juvenile. In a November 2018 press conference, the Middlesex County District Attorney, Marion Ryan, 
announced the official results of the Harvard murder investigation, the murder of Jane Britton. Ryan announced, quote, Michael Sumter has been identified as the person responsible for the 1969 murder of Jane Britton. I am confident that the mystery of who killed Jane Britton has finally been solved and that this case is officially closed, end quote. The murder of Jane is the oldest cold case ever to be solved in Middlesex County. We now know who is responsible for killing Jane. But the next question becomes, why? Why did Michael Sumter rape and murder such an innocent person, and how? Police theorized that Sumter used the apartment building's fire escape to gain access to Jane's apartment. Remember, one of Jane's neighbors reported to police they recalled hearing a weird and unusual noise coming from the building's fire escape that night. Toxicology reports from Jane's autopsy found that her blood was alcohol-free, but her stomach had an alcohol content of 0.08%, meaning that the drink she had at her neighbor's apartment hadn't metabolized in her blood yet, suggesting she was killed during a very short period of time after returning home from her neighbors. After Sumper raped and killed Jane, he made his way back down the fire escape and fled the building. Michael was 5 foot 11 and 185 pounds at the time of Jane's murder, which was a very accurate eyewitness description provided by the neighbor who recalled seeing a man run away from the apartment building. The motive in the case remains a mystery. We don't know why Michael Sumter selected Jane as his next victim. With a lengthy history of sexual assaults, it's also unclear why his crimes graduated to murder with Jane. The only person who knows the answer to that is Michael Sumter himself. One last thing. What about the reddish-brown powder found all throughout the apartment? What did that have to do with anything? Police theorized that despite the great significance that they gave to the powder early on in the investigation, this part was just a huge red herring. That the powder was found throughout Jane's apartment because it was just residue from one of Jane's very own pieces of art. It turns out it had absolutely nothing to do with the case, and the rumor that somehow Jane's death was linked to her studies as an anthropology student was squashed. For nearly 50 years, five decades, Harvard was haunted by the brutal rape and murder of graduate student Jane Britton, one of the prestigious university's very own. Solving a five-decade cold case highlights the power of advancements in DNA and forensic testing, 
I think Jane Britton's case really proves that even the coldest of cold cases can be solved. And as forensic science and DNA testing continues to evolve and improve over the years, more and more cold cases will be solved. More killers will be identified and they will be taken off our streets. Jane's case also presented police with many red herrings along the way. Starting with the theory that Jane must have known her killer, or the reddish-brown powder found throughout the apartment. None of these leads had anything to do with what really happened that night. The truth, however, turned out to be far less complicated. And it's all because of the advancements in DNA testing that a cold case is finally solved. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell. For a small monthly contribution, you can gain access to bonus content and be one of the first to listen to new weekly episodes. Or if you simply want to support my show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Forensic Tales. Leaving us a rating with a review greatly helps support the show. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., William R., and Joseph F. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or email me at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. Please join me next week. We release a new episode every Monday. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. 